When she was growing up in rural New Jersey, J.L. Williams wrote a play about pirates. Today, Williams is best known as a poet, but she has continued to sail across various genres, including visual arts, dance, theatre, and most recently, opera. Although Williams may have put pirates long behind her, associations with the sea and the dramatic portrayal of a vividly realised world still run deep into her poetry, as Susanna V. Evans discovered when she caught up with her at the Stanza Poetry Festival in 2018. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. I wanted actually to start by asking you about your opera and theatre interests, um, because you wrote a libretto for a new opera called Snow, and I was wondering if you could just tell me a bit about the process and how you got into this work, if writing a libretto is drastically different to writing a poem, or whether there are similarities, things that feed into both of them? Of course. Uh, I think I've always been really interested in performance, and from when I was very young, actually, must have been really very, very young, I I don't even know why exactly, but I seem to be brought to theatrical experiences. I grew up in New Jersey, and I guess I just had very kind parents who thought it would be nice to take me take me out and have these experiences. And I, so I, um, and, and I grew up in, in pretty rural suburban New Jersey, but about an hour outside of Manhattan essentially mm-hmm. so it was a nice country mouse city mouse situation yeah. so um, there was this possibility to kind of go into the city and see Broadway plays see the ballet go to museums and yeah. I don't think I ever saw opera when I was young I think that was probably a step above where we were <laughs> culturally in northern New Jersey at that point but but I definitely remember seeing these kind of large-scale productions and being totally awed by them mm-hmm. and I always was interested in performing and theater, mm-hmm. and uh, we had quite a, a difficult, troubled, broken household in mer- various ways, and I think I remember just this very distinctly that I I wrote plays before I ever wrote poems when I was okay. quite young, and yeah. we performed one of my early plays in the third grade, I believe it was a pirate play, <laughs> and I got to be I wrote myself in as the princess in the play, and. I remember sitting behind an armchair in our living room and writing away mm. and having this very strong realization that of being in control so that one could imagine these characters and make things happen in their lives. Mm. And I think for me growing up in a household where I didn't have control and difficult things were happening, mm. it must have been very empowering and yeah. kind of felt like a very safe space and um, an exciting space to, to move from yeah, that, yeah. the kind of turbulent waves of, of childhood to yeah. that situation of feeling empowered and in control in writing. So yeah. I think from, from a very, very young age, I had that sense of that being freeing and a place to explore other realities than the one you were experiencing. Yeah. So, so I think that attracted to me to theater from a very early age. And uh, then... Pretty soon after that, I uh, someone handed me a book of poetry, and that took over my life, and I became obsessed with poetry and wrote poems sort of all throughout my life since about probably third grade. But that idea of theater and performance and writing through voices and characters mm-hmm. uh, always stuck with me, yeah. and is a big part of the way I feel about poetry as well. So for me, poetry is always quite linked to the the earliest 
classical and pre-classical idea of us as human beings sat around mm. a, a fire and listening to and, someone, yeah. you know, yeah. stop about <laughs> and relate or, you know, and, and that, I, I mean, I have a very strong feeling and that those earliest versions of these things are deeply connected of of what a poem was and what theater was i'm not mm-hmm. sure they are too different yeah in that's some that's way. interesting so, yeah. yeah so so that um just stuck with me and i always did theatrical work as well at university too and then by the time i i came to edinburgh originally to work on plays at the fringe and then I uh, worked eventually at the Traverse Theatre as the literary officer there. So I worked a lot with developing plays and working with playwrights there. And one of the wonderful directors I worked with there, uh, called Stuart Lang, had told me about something called the Jerwood Opera Writing Program, which was an amazing um, kind of year-long program down in Alborough where Benjamin Mm -hmm. Britten did his work. Mm -hmm. And... Stuart had suggested I apply, which I did, and I got onto the program, and that was really how I got into opera, because that was, I think, I'd been to some operas before, and and Mm -hmm. I found it very interesting, but Mm -hmm. I think if you're not, don't grow up in a household or family that's really into opera, and if you're not exposed to that from early on, it's one of the the most um, inaccessible art forms, I think, sometimes it can feel quite hard to understand or get involved in, so... This was an amazing entree into that whole world and, and it was it was we would go down for residential weeks and it was sort of ten writers and ten composers stuck together, just okay. totally dropped into the world of opera and we had real practitioners of all different aspects of opera coming in and giving us talks about uh, opera opera history and opera production and they over the course of a year um, put us through many, many exercises and got us making operas and they had opera singers and musicians and conductors all there and designers and by the end of the year we actually each produced sort of short operas mm-hmm. uh, which were performed down in Alborough which was just totally phenomenal and then off the back of that I was uh, invited by this new opera company to write the a libretto of Snow White the story of Snow mm-hmm. White but for these young composers mm-hmm. and it was just such a beautiful experience and got to go down to London for that last year and see it performed and wow. I just, I don't know, there's something about, I think that's another thing that's interesting when you're thinking about poetry versus mm. writing for the stage uh, is that I think with poems you often end up being the one to read them out if they are being performed live and when you're writing for actors or for singers as in the opera, it's so amazing that other people are bringing Mm. your words Mm -hmm. to life Mm -hmm. and I found that totally (laughs) like so exciting and freeing and especially with with opera singers because they have spent so much of their lives turning their bodies into these extraordinary instruments Mm. I mean that was the whole thing about opera it's them it's the musicians who spent their whole lives becoming these extraordinary musicians the conductors the the set designers there's so many people involved And they come together and your words are somehow in the middle of that, (laughs) vibrating and coming out of these people's mouths and determining, you know, interacting with the bars of music. Very overwhelming and beautiful. And one of the things I think is really exciting for me with, I've worked a lot with music and poetry as well, and I think I relate to poetry in a very musical way. Mm -hmm. And I often think of a poem as a score and the way it's set out on a page being about sound and silence. So, so, uh, 
that sense of it being literally brought into song it also felt yeah, very yeah. like a, a natural kind of development of the poetry that's really interesting yeah um and your your workshop that you gave as part of stanza was on masks could you tell me a bit about that yes so we uh, were working in collaboration and in the physical location of musa the mm. the saint andrews museum here and they have really interesting collection that has artworks and uh, there's an ethnographic collection and an archaeological collection so there's wonderful pieces from different time periods and different places and we were looking at the self so there were self-portraits on print and in paintings and then some of these ritual masks uh, and a kind of bell a stone age bell with Mm -hmm. a figure in it and we were really trying to think about first of all what it means to write from the self or about the self Mm -hmm. and then what it means to think about art in terms of ekphrasis and a kind of Mm -hmm. poetic Mm -hmm. response or textual response to an artwork and then combining those two things so if there's a way I think sometimes especially um, we a, a cultural it was interesting there were some people from Britain in the workshop and some people from other places and we were talking a lot about cultural identity and authenticity of self and that these masks we wear in different cultures are varied as well and uh, so there's lots of interesting talk about that and and how much emotion is revealed naturally by people almost like a personal space issue how much different people from different places feel comfortable Mm -hmm. with Um, and then and then looking at the physical objects of the masks and thinking about what they are as art objects, but also how they might have been used originally and how, like for instance, something quite interesting came up was like a poem um, can sit just in in its page or in the book and be a kind of page object in that way. Um, but if it's performed or if it comes, mm-hmm. if, if it's voice, then it it, it has a different kind of life. And we were talking yep. about the masks in that way that they can sit in a museum and be something mm-hmm. to look at, uh, a beautiful object that we kind of can think about and look at. But then they have this other life when they're used in performance. So lots of interesting different ways in of, yeah, of thinking yeah. about that. And it was quite beautiful to see. Um, so we, we did some writing about the self, then the curators at the museum talked us through each of the objects and then people could actually handle them mm-hmm. and look at them. And then we did writing in response to them. And it was wonderful to see the different responses. People came up with such interesting... And just sort of thinking about your own poetry, one of the things that I sort of thought about your writing is that it's it's very vivid. And there's one in, in the poem, Desiderata Nocturne. Am I pronouncing that right? <laughs> oh, that. Um, you describe the night as a baguette of gold. Mm. It's something you could picture. It's very vivid. And then there's, there's a line in Asterism. You cough out a mouthful of glitter and I see stars. And it reminded me a little bit of, um, I don't know if you know the writer Caroline Bird at all. Mm. She sometimes has these very kind of also quite... Sometimes quite visceral, um, but but very kind of these bright, vivid images, and and like the glitter kind of. And and I was wondering if you had a model or any any other writer that inspired you in this way, or or whether the vividness, these kind of descriptions, come from somewhere that you can name, or whether they're they're just you know something that happens more naturally. Or mm, that's a nice question. 
it, and it's funny. <laughs> so, um, one of the people working here on Sansa was just saying in the taxi on the way over that she's working. I think her uh, thesis that she's working on is about image, image in poetry, and mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, I think almost the how modern poetry in some ways is trying to get away from the the imagism that was maybe strongly promoted by writers like T.S. Eliot. Yeah, but yeah. see, I'm quite attracted <laughs> to those sorts of poets. Me too. I think in a way, I think in images, I think I've got a very visual mm-hmm. imagination and I seem to get a lot of responses to my poetry that it was it was very abstract and they had, a, they, they had trouble finding a way in. But one of the really nice comments I got from early on was someone had said that my poems are almost like impressionist paintings. Like mm-hmm. there was kind of accumulation of images that yeah. could tell the story in a different yeah. narrative way and that was very exciting for me because that was something I was quite interested in you know I loved especially Ezra Pound I really um actually loved Pound and and studied Pound and Elliot when I was first studying oh, writing at university okay. and I, I think that sense of the potency of an image being able to carry weight mm. um imaginative and emotional and narrative weight mm. in a poem was very mm. exciting to me and sometimes what frustrates me about prose is that you have to explain everything so much yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean yeah. obviously yeah. the yeah. world's great literature comes out about explaining but what i get so excited about in poetry is that you know there's a kind of time machine thing that happens when you put a series, a sequence of images together mm. in a poem where you, you can move between time and space in this way that I think is much more concise mm. and mm. and bigger in a way than yeah. what prose can do sometimes. And there's yeah. this wonderful, uh, I have this amazing book that is called um, Walking Tours of Southern France and it's actually a collection, it's kind of obscure collection of uh, Pound's diaries from when he was young and he walked the troubadour routes in the mm-hmm. south of France mm-hmm. and wrote to diaries while he was doing this mm-hmm. and there's this one line that always gets me when I think of this that was that I find so found very exciting at the time where he is coming to one of the ancient kind of medieval turrets in a, a little village in the south of France and it was just at the same time when the first skyscrapers were being built in New York. Oh, okay. And he compares the two in this one line. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like superimposing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, it vibrates yeah. somehow, you know, yeah. the kind of time and yeah. space of that. And I, yeah. I feel like that's still something in my writing that I'm very interested in. Mm. And some of the poets I was interested in when I was really first writing seriously were poets like Louise Glick and Alice Notley, who... I think also, uh, you know, diff- very different kinds of writers in many ways, but um, I think the the beauty of the image and the potency of the image was mm-hmm. always still very much there in their work. And I think I think in 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 yours as well. Just thinking about the poem um, "Water What Sounds," mm. and it seems to me like it's sort of stacking images. One of the other questions I was going to ask was a sort of a place question because we're in St Andrews right now. We're surrounded by sea, and a lot of your writing, and this is probably another reason I, I enjoyed it, was because I, I adore the sea, and it seems to be quite impregnated with the sea. And I was wondering if the sea and this this idea of kind of layering of images kind of relates in itself to time. It's sort of like a compacting of like a geological kind of like how cliffs are formed or rocks, you know, kind of everything is compacted over time, and whether the images might also be doing that as well. I love that idea. I haven't <laughs> thought about it in quite that way, but that's a, a beautiful idea. I, I would ask, was asked to do a, 
a project uh, some years ago about James Hutton, who's mm. the famous Scottish geologist who did a lot of work on deep time and very mm. ancient time mm. and looking at land formations and seeing that mm. that compression. And yeah. I, I think there's a Japanese photographer and artist I love um, called Sugimoto. And he has done some very beautiful work with time. Uh, for instance, he would set a camera in the back of a old movie theaters you know this kind of beautiful mm -hmm. old movie theaters that are often now gone or mm -hmm. crumbling away and he just keep the lens of the camera open for the duration of a whole film so what you see in the image he produces is this very ghostly light illuminating the beautiful kind of velvet curtains yeah. and ornate facades of the theater and then this kind of light that's almost coming out at you out of the out of the photograph and mm. of course you can't see anything you can't see any of the image of the film it's become just this glowing white light but it's the whole movie's in that light mm. and there's something about that idea of you know our sense of time is so bound by our understanding of it in the present moment mm -hmm. and yet because of the way we're capable of of having imaginations and this consciousness that can take in much more than that i don't know i, I just think it, it's it's one of the most perplexing and and yet and, and sometimes troubling but also exquisite things about being alive and being human and and that feels you know i was talking to someone the other day about slowness and mm trying to have more slowness in our lives. And she'd said with the, we had these big snowstorms last week and that in a way, because she'd been stuck at home, she felt everything had slowed down. And then she'd been out walking her dog in this beautiful valley that she walks in in every, do every day. But normally she's got so many thoughts in her and she doesn't really see it. And this yeah. beautiful mist had sort of rolled down the valley. And she said she just stopped and she took it all in and mm -hmm. it went in her in this very mm -hmm. deep way. And time kind of stopped and changed and she really saw it and I I was just thinking now looking out at the sea that it's it's hard some, sometimes to kind of take in the sea it's almost too big and too yeah. constant to really get that image into your head and that yeah. that to me sometimes is what the experience of life feels like but at the same time I think if you if you kind of slow down and take a, a deep breath or that's what we were talking a lot about in the workshop today like if you you could walk through a whole museum and not really see anything mm -hmm. but if you just to, went in and picked one piece and spent two hours looking at it and writing about it, you'd probably have a much more rich experience. Yeah. And thinking thinking about nature and, and, and landscapes, I, I was also kind of drawn to some of the descriptions of animals in your writing. So you've got in the poem Woodnote, you've got a description of a deer with a face made of wild flowers, which I really love, this idea that they're kind of like melding with the, the landscape. There's another poem that opens with a lion's head, mouth hanging. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about the animals in your writing, mm. or if they play a particular role, or, or again, if it's just it's just something that you're kind of naturally drawn to writing about. Mm. That's interesting, yeah, because I don't, I'm not sure I've thought about this in a very yeah. conscious way. Um, it's so nice to see what people notice in, in one's work. Thank mm. you. I'm vegan. I w I've been vegetarian most of my life and then became vegan a few years ago. And it's been an interesting thing because... I never thought of myself as a particularly moral vegetarian. I've always loved animals, but I, I, um, I was vegetarian for kind of other reasons. And then, but becoming vegan, I think it feels like this next step. I think that was very much having learned a lot more about industrial farming mm -hmm. and a lot of things I felt uncomfortable about 
the environmental consequences of it, but in a way also this kind of deep acceptance within me that I don't, it's very hard for me to differentiate between the value of different types of life. So it seems just as extraordinary to me that swordfish is alive or that zebra finch, like all, all these things seem just as extraordinary and remarkable to me um mm. or you know like a caterpillar <laughs> it still seems yeah. really i think the fact of of any kind of life is it seems like such a miracle to me and you know again thinking of of time my my partner was saying we have two cats he was saying to me the other day do you think their life because they live so much for such a shorter period of time than us feels like the time of their life feels different. Do they feel that it's mm. rushing by more than us? And I was thinking, I suspect not. You know, yeah. I imagine if a butterfly is alive for three days, its life feels as long and full and also as brief as, yeah. as ours do yeah. to yeah. us. Yeah. I, I hope so, at least it would be a bit sad otherwise. Yeah. But anyway, once you once you really feel kind of strongly about that, mm. I think one sees the world in a, in a, a sort of, it, it feels like a very rich way of seeing the world because there's life all around and these creatures all around. And and I think for me, they are as interesting to talk about and think about uh, in poetry as as people are or as yeah. ideas are. Great. And I was wondering if we could finish with some poems. <laughs> so I thought that the first one I'd, I'd really love you to read, um, if you don't mind, is Water What Sounds, seeing as... You've mentioned it a couple of times and I, I sort of enjoy the almost kind of listy aspect to it. I wanted to, to tell you as well that this tiny poem was the actually written one. here. Oh, wow. it, it was it was right. at Stanza a couple right. of years ago. I can I can read that one very yeah, briefly. Do, do. It's just yeah, two yeah, sentences, yeah. but it was just I was I was here at Stanza a couple of years ago and standing out by the sea and looking at it and okay. these lines came into my wow. head. The whale carcass on the beach with nearly all the flesh washed away, the taste of those salty bones defamiliarizing words. <laughs> Water what sounds. Bells toll, as in mist where oil and flesh of seal mix, plain song held body come long before boats, before dream of sand by bottle god, green glass god eye, green glass bottle god body, green glass dream of ocean, ocean angels, mermaids, narwhals, bodies of elephant, skeletons of ivory, long lost seabed, mouthing clutch of anemone, many colored, woman's hair, woman's breath, woman's tusk, Cold bodies, long sea green bottles, skin beyond bell tone, laughter of dumb boys in green bottle glass, sea bone life plays underwater, plain song long, this green eternal. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then, and then the other poem that I was really interested in hearing is is another poem that kind of has has rockful imagery and, and sort of sea imagery in it um it's called georgian gallery absolutely so this one was written i had a 
the honor of having a residency at the Talbot Rice Gallery in Edinburgh with my friend Catherine Street, who's an amazing artist, and we worked there for a couple of years responding to works in the gallery. And uh, the, one of their galleries is called the Georgian Gallery, and there's this amazing piece of artwork there called Sequencer by the artist Benedict Drew, and this was very much written kind of in energetic response to that piece of work, which was very immersive and fabulous. I feel the sound increasing all around me. Then it breaks off. It's as if someone is beating the giants who live upstairs on top of the mountain. The scene is changing. All the time, it is as if the landscape is changing. I think we may be changing the landscape. It may be that there is a drone. There is a drone. I think I hear a drone. This is how a drone sees. Yellow, trembling, in fast forward, trembling, melting, lava-like, the land is changing. Behind the landscape is a mountain. In front of the mountain is a glowing sled. I mean a glowing harness. I mean a glowing rucksack frame. I mean that before and behind the mountain, there is a landscape which can be perceived by the low flying whose ears are attuned to silence, only now the internal sounds of the body. A pink portal, a vagina mouth, the opening through which no sound pours. Two ears attached to a body of tent poles. Speak into the ear. That's what he said, but someone forgot to put on the headphones. If only I could stand and whisper these words into the ear, he would hear me as if I was whispering into his ear. There was a time when I was close enough to hear color, to see sound. I remember that in the dream there was a sailing ship. I kept washing up on different beaches. The taste of the sand was always in my nose. The feeling of the salt was always in my ears. I mean, the sound of the salt. I mean, the heart of the water was my heart, and I was a whale, or all of nature was also all of me. The way rocks hear, the way lichen whisper, the way people millions of years ago scratched their DNA code into a cave wall deep underground, the way a man walks past me, bearded, all in black, carrying a bag, head raised, full of sound. All the body and all the organs of the body and all the wetness below the crust pulsating in time to the stretched drone feather rock, fast forward lichen, rock pool, feather rock, fast forward civilization. Time was a city there, then a forest, then a city, then a forest, then water, then a village, then ice then a city, then water, a forest that grows in a circle, then changes to the shape of a liver, then changes to the shape of a heart, then changes to the shape of a diamond. A woman in the center of the forest, 
has dug a hole a mile deep. Belly sounds, blood sounds, mouth sounds, cell sounds, marrow sounds. When mosses grow, they listen to the blood in the rock flow. Who can live on the blood of the rock? Only the like know. Somewhere in the forest, the woman has made a hole two miles deep. She is digging. The pink hole is damp around the edges. In the wooden building at the base of the mountain, a man sits by an extinguished fire. Oh, fire, whose scent is the soul of the wood. There in the dark room, the scent of charred wood and smoke circles his bald head. His eyes are closed, but he can see the woman deep in the forest, deep in the hole. He can almost feel her wet lips grazing the furred edge of his ear. The man holds a chipped mug of whiskey in his hand, a hand hardened by wood. His beard is rough moss. His eyes are stones. The woman says, my heart is a pink hole into which you must come. The mug falls to the ground. The wooden building at the base of the mountain is empty but for the scent of the soul of the wood, spilt whiskey, sweat of a man. Thank you. I was just thinking one other thing when I heard that Japanese artist Sugimoto uh, give a presentation once and he finished his presentation of his artworks with a picture of a kind of frozen over planet and he said one of the things I like to think about is five million years from now <laughs> and at the time I found it kind of frightening and a bit strange but but lately I've been actually finding a lot of comfort in this idea of long spaces of time and that in a way our lives are these brief flashes but that's part of what makes them so brilliant and so special but also when you're feeling a bit worried or overwhelmed by things the thought of 100 years from now or 500 <laughs> years from now or 5 million years from now, it makes one's little stresses and truths very small <laughs> Um, I thought we could finish with one last poem um, and I was really interested in hearing antelope for the sounds and for the O's of the poem. Yes. <laughs> antelope. In our hollow horns, music, beyond the long slope of stone, shallow where myriad anemone blooms, eels were raised for Antioch Caesar's blessing. Bounce now, blousin of white like mist, he said, where underwater is blue and bellow below, her hair a gold bubble shaft, his white hands beneath the water like ivory and art and I am. Bold, blow, he says, I am a boundary and boundless. Then when the great plains were covered in snow as white as ivory, we watched the last antelope like a dream of what man had been bounding the drifts. And where his airy horns had broken off, music blew out as if from French horns, women's mouths, 
the caves we enter into. Great. Thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy the rest of stanza. Oh, thank you, <laughs> you as well. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for taking me. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com. 